record. Mm. Yep, that does seem to be. <laughs> we've done it once, mate. We've stuffed up once. Um, <laughs> we, I think we got. It was like three quarters of the way into an interview. And... I've dealt with the army before. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, it's going to be like that, is it? Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Welcome to the Upgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. Hello, Tim. Who have we got on the show today, Ben? We've got Dean Fechner. Now, Dean, we've been in touch with Dean for a couple of months. I've, I've really enjoyed having a couple of chats with him and getting to know a bit about his story. But as it turns out, not the whole story, which we're going to, to uncover in this episode. But Stories, plural. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Serious layers on layers, out of control. <laughs> he's, he's lived enough to, to cram into about four different lifetimes. But um, Cliff Notes is that, that Dean started uh, his professional career in the Air Force, the Australian Air Force, um, ending up there as a physical training instructor. Three times around my beautiful body. Go! <laughs> um, and we, we explore where they learn some of those wonderful um, techniques and, and lines. lines. Um, but then he spent a, a, a second career in Victorian police and then uh, into um, a, a really interesting time in Iraq training the police force over there in the post-conflict environment in the south of that country before coming back to Australia and doing uh, security roles in places like the New South Wales Parliament, the Sydney Opera House, as well as um, Parliament House down in Canberra where he ended up as the Director of Security Operations. But throughout this, he has a few hiccups with his health. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some, I won't go into too much of the detail, but he has to turn to a few of the techniques that we advocate that diminish vulnerability and improve resilience uh, specifically breathing and meditation. He was a physical training instructor, so knew the importance of exercise and diet and sleep. But unfortunately, they were all a bit compromised. He he couldn't move the way he wanted to move, and he was constantly fatigued, but yet he didn't feel like he could sleep. So yeah, a lot of really good um, insights into drive and motivation and mindset in this episode. Yeah, so we're going to talk with Dean about what helped him get through um, what is a, an absolutely tough time that he's, he's dealt with, um, but also what he's doing now with, with everything he's learned uh, from his own resilience experiences, uh, how he's turning that to help other people, including first responders. So a cracking chat with Dean coming up. Let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60. My name's Ben Prop. And my name's Tim Curtis. And Tim and I are joined um, this week by uh, another amazing guest. Um, 
you've heard the the bio from uh, Dean, and it sort of sums up a, a bit of what he's done. But there's so much to it, uh, or so much more to it, than um, than what you might have heard in their uh, initial introduction. And so, uh, we're really excited to be be chatting with Dean and to welcome him to the show. Uh, thanks, Ben and Tim, and a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm really happy to, to come on the show. Dean, we always start by getting our guests to to sort of outline a bit of their background and and their kind of journey that that got them uh, got them to to where they are today, and we'd like to do the same with you. Yeah, of course. Um, I'll give you sort of a short history. There's been a bit of a roller coaster ride and plenty plenty of jobs along the way, but um, sort of grew up in Queensland with thongs and a, a t-shirt in sort of the, the Gold Coast hinterland. Um, parents were um, mum worked at home and and dad was an earth mover, so I grew up up in places like O'Reilly's and Binnaburra and all those sort of things in the back of bulldozers. So that, that was a kick-off to my life. And then from there, I uh, joined the Air Force at 18. First time I jumped on a plane and flew across to um, to Adelaide uh, and did my recruit training across there. And from day one, I, I loved the Defence Force. I, I thought the whole thing was a bit of a joke, really. I thought these guys give me free stuff and let me run around and do exercise and, and play with mates. It, it was fantastic. So... Um, really, really enjoyed it, and I, I joined with the um, the idea, I suppose, of becoming an electrician. So I went to Rath Base Wagat at a Forest Hill. If you've ever been to Kapuka, it's probably not too far away from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and commenced my training there to become an electrician. So um, unfortunately, I got to the end of the course and then decided it's not really what I wanted to do. I um, I'd always wanted to be into the the physical side of training. Um, so I I got to there and I'd, I'd failed one subject. And after you fail a subject, yeah, they, they throw you into a, a sort of a, a group and what are you doing and why aren't you passing? And I just said, I don't really want to do this. I, I want to go and become a, a PDI, which is a physical training instructor. And they'd never heard of that before because normally people go there and they plead to stay and everything like that. So I just said, I really want to do this. And so they chucked me across to the, the PDI factory um, and uh, let me play with the PDIs there for a while. And I eventually got on to a PDI course in which was the sort of early 90s, the first of the tri-service, so the three different service courses, um, down at HMA Cerberus in, um, in Western Port in um, Victoria. Can you tell us a bit about the PTI course? Cause, um, it's, of course. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that, um, I mean, it's a pretty good product across the Defence Force, the physical training instructors. Learn how to shave your legs, I understand. You learn how to shave your legs. <laughs> <laughs> Take photos of yourself. I don't, I don't know if there's any PTIs that I've ever come across that didn't have shave legs. Well, and clearly there's no sort of educational aptitude, the classic army PTI. Maybe this is just army, Dean, but the, the sort of half of you here, half of you there, and the other half over there. Correct. The sort of form half a semicircle around me. You know, touch something red, white, and blue after three times around my beautiful body. Go. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it, it it seems like a pretty good uh, product, and and from what I've heard, is it's not a doddle. It's a it's quite a challenging course. Did, how do you find it? Yeah, I, I found it pretty tough. Um, I think I was really young. Like at that time, I think I was about the youngest Air Force or the PTI that had ever gone through the course. I was, I think you had to be twenty one, and I was twenty at that stage. And um, most of the Army Navy guys were sort of well, I'd call them men. I felt like I was about fifteen at the time, but. Um, and, and they were a lot older than me, probably with a lot more sort of military experience. Mm. Um, I'd come from a fairly good sort of sporting background, um, played a lot of sort of high-level sport in my younger days. Um, but mixing with guys that are a bit more conditioned, I suppose, than, than what I was, I, I found it quite difficult. But once again, I, I thrived and I loved it. Um, got to do so many different things, adventure training to, to caving, to abseiling, 
um, a lot of running around with um, with shells full of concrete and teaching hmm. sort of battle PT, the stuff that sort of people pay to do now. We were sort of getting taught how to how to teach sort of defence force people um, the, what to do and how to condition themselves. And it was early days though of the physical training. I've, I, it's adapted a lot since then. I think it's much more modern. But yeah, back then it was pretty old school. Um, the harder you work and fitter you get, the, the better you'll be rather than the sort of... We, we did a lot of educational components in, in the physical conditioning and anatomy, physiology, the normal stuff, but we did an awful lot of stuff that probably wasn't as relevant as, as what it is now. And, um, but it, it was good. Um, unfortunately, I got to the end of my first course and I, I broke my tibia and I had to go back and do the whole thing again. So that was the start of my um, resilience journey, I think. So I, I was lucky enough to do it twice. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine that would have been fun. Yeah, yeah, but the, the course is, is really good. It's it's very very challenging, and it's sort of a six month product. And now at the end comes a Navy Air Force or, or Army PDI that goes across and um, then goes to whichever base you get sent to and um, and start gets to torture other humans. So you, yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, for fun. Yeah, you eventually got through. You you um, busted your tibia and and um, had to redo the course. But from there. Yeah, uh, from there I went to um, uh, to Melbourne and down to Point Cook and to Laverton um, and did a lot of training there. The Austin Training School was at Point Cook. I met a few of your former colleagues there doing sort of language sort of training and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, and predominantly we were just training officer cadets, so that, that's the, the Air Force's um, idea of where they train their uh, Air Force cadets when they're not going to through to ADFA, they sort of get or after they'd been to officer training school, they then come to there and um, and get through put through their paces. So it was a really good first place for me to go, actually. It was it was a good place at that time. It was uh, the flight training school for um, Air Force pilots as well. So they'd take us up for joy flights and stuff every now and again in their, in their, their training runs. And um, it was just, yeah, it was a great place to work. Very cool. And following on from there, I went to, to ADFA uh, and was a PDI there. Probably, I'm not sure whether either of you Gentleman went through through Adfa, but um, yeah, we both did. Yeah, about '95, I think I was there um, for sort of three or four years, and my um, former boss was sort of there about the same time I was as well in going through Adfa. But that was another great place to work. It was really interesting work, and get to mould a lot of to young people and treat them pretty badly and uh, have a good time. But once again, try service, really good atmosphere to work, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, I was I was there from '94 to '96, so we, we definitely overlapped. We would, would have, um, I think, uh, sort of had a few of the the same, um, I guess, colleagues from the the PTI side of things. I think my experience was probably different um, on the receiving end <laughs> of some of that stuff. But um, they were they were a good crew. We yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's a, once again, and still a good place to work from from all accounts. Um, I think the tri service thing sort of back then was quite new, but it's um. It seemed to work well, and once again, you just you're working with a great bunch of people with common sort of mission and goals and those sort of things, and um, I, I really enjoyed it. Have you been to India? 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 Well, you better get some of it, India. Uh, post post that, I pretty much left the Air Force and I um, 
uh, went on to start a personal training business sort of before personal training was sort of famous when it first kicked off and, and did that for a couple of years. And then um, not long after that, I joined Victoria Police um, with most of my time spent down in the western suburbs of, um, of Melbourne, sort of uh, Footscray, Altona North, Werribee, um, the sort of the nicer suburbs down there. Mm. Um, and once again, same sort of environment, great people to work with, professional sort of outfit. Um, and, and really focused on on the job and went through police training, that sort of thing. Um, and, and a lot of my time was general duty stuff. I, I did a bit of um, what was a regional response unit, so going out a little bit and playing clothes and, and, and those sorts of things. But I, I love play. It's actually what I wanted to do when I was when I was a really young guy was join the police force because it's just the idea of sort of helping people and um, had always been sort of in the back of my mind and. But I found policing, strangely enough, to be different to what I expected. I thought it would be much more in the, the physical realms. Mm. But I found the the idea of um, talking to people in, in, in different ways and sort of the – they talked about tactical communication, but it was more like having a chat with people and developing that sort of rapport and relationship that was, um, was so effective. And you, you could see it in some of the older guys. I would just – they'd know that every time they could, they could talk to people and um, just – get pretty much whatever they <laughs> whatever they sort of needed from them in just a real casual way over a cigarette or something get the back of the station so um it, it was really interesting for me to to see that different way of um of communicating but also what what i thought about policing was was different it still involved a lot of those skills and attributes and but the communication was a, a really good one for me to to learn and to learn differently you might have answered some of this already dean but in terms of contrasting the way a military person is trained and the way a police officer is trained, what are the good and bad bits of both of those systems? How do they differ? Uh, I think with Defence Force, it, it was much more... It was more regimented, I think, the way they went about it. Like, um, if I compare my sort of recruit training and, and PDI course, it was there was, like, a course you had to do, you had to do everything It was... I guess the less flexibility in the way that you were trained. Mm-hmm. Um, the police was a little bit more flexible while still keeping in, in mind the job at the end. Um, I, I probably thought the academy, police academy training at that time was still a little bit light on for the, and I had some skills before I went there, which was helpful for me, but I thought particularly in the, um, uh, the defensive tactics side of things, um, and they've only got you for a short period of time, so it, it's really hard. But when you consider that after a sort of a week's worth of um, small arms or, or, or pistol shooting, you're, you're sort of qualified and you're on day one, you're out in the job, you could potentially have to fire your weapon. It just those sorts of things felt a bit light on in terms of um, uh, just being able to deliver that sort of that, that, that product, I think, at the end. So... I, I think they both had their pros and cons, but I probably think Defence Force ways of doing things were a little bit, maybe a better product at the end, but a combination of doing both of those courses, I think, was really valuable. Mm. Yeah, Krulak, a US Marine Corps general, talked about the three-block war. You know, On the first block, you're conducting peacekeeping operations. On the second block, humanitarian operations. And on the third block, war fighting. And you have to be able to transition from those things really quickly. You've got to be adept in each of those skills. And we were talking to one of the policing units recently and we talked about Krulak. And I think there's probably no more relevance to police than understanding that theory. 
what was your experience on the need to transition between you know smoking a cigarette and getting information to booking someone on the freeway to you know filling out a speeding ticket to you know being constable care at a primary school how does all of that peculiarly fit together it's a really good question because I, that is exactly how it works. And those the examples you gave there were what, what I actually did. I remember taking my the police car to my daughter's school and um, turning on the lights and all that sort of stuff. And um, I remember talking to someone that was trying to attempt suicide off the top of the Westgate Bridge with my daughter in the car on the way home from a, from a, um, from a lunch one day. So um, there's it, just different ways of... And it was like it was something that you learned a little bit. Mm. Like a lot of it... And I must consider the age bracket the joins of police too. You can have anyone in there from sort of straight out of school to someone that's sort of 50 years of age. So I think the life experience was handy. I often wondered how the 18-year-old kid rocks up at a, a domestic violence sort of situation with kids and adults in the house and tries to explain to them the, the good mm-hmm. and bad of, um, of, of marriage counselling when they've just sort of come out of school. Like, I think you learn those things as, as you go. I think... I was held in pretty good stead because I, I was a pretty good communicator by that by that stage. I think I, I grew up in the country and I could sort of relate to people pretty easily. But once again, like I said before, those communication skills are so valuable mm. um, and get you out of a lot of a lot of trouble. Um, one particular instance, I remember we were in Werribee one night and um, talking to a, a rather large group of Mary individuals and um they were getting a bit feisty and everything sort of there was just two two of us there and everything was was cool and our our, our sergeant um rocked up and um decided that it needed to be a bit angrier than it was and it just turned to turmoil really quickly just because mm-hmm. someone had sort of voiced their opinion in the wrong way and it just shopping trolls were getting thrown at people and it just went to chaos so quickly <laughs> it was crazy mm-hmm. and so um from the police staying in that sort of security space with uh, courts and parliament? Yeah, uh, after the police force, my wife, I was training up to join the sort of special operations group uh, for Victoria Police, but um, my wife got offered a, a job up in Sydney. She was with a pharmaceutical company at the time, uh, a training role, which was pretty good to turn down at the moment. So I sort of jumped out of the police and ended up at um, Sydney Opera House. Uh, as a security training manager there for a, for the new guard force that had sort of kicked off sort of after 9-11. Um, so that was that was really interesting. Great. Once again, a fantastic place to work and I felt pretty privileged to work there really because it was plenty of entertainment and New Year's Eve and concerts and, and those sorts mm-hmm. of things. But once again, taught me a lot. Post uh, Sydney Opera House, uh, sort of then we're talking probably APEC Task Force, which was a, a rather yeah, large yeah. task force here for the, um, all the visiting sort of dignitaries from around the world, um, Putin and George Bush and, and those sort of people. So I got to meet a, meet a couple of people there that was really, but that was, that was a good job. So I had a, a few of your um, former colleagues sort of embedded in our, in our task force um, had just a massive job and it was all around the country, but it predominantly finished in um, in Sydney with the Leaders Week, which is at Sydney Opera House and sort of Government House where the leaders sort of come together and um, had their main meeting. But just to see that overlay of the sort of all the different tiers of security all sort of working together was was, was just a, a really big highlight for me. Mm. And are we uh, safe in the understanding that you then move from 
this domestic life um, into the international environment in a far more challenging role in Iraq. Correct, yes. Yeah. So I went across with a company that's called um, BLP uh, and we did some police training in sort of southern Iraq in, at the Numenaya National Police Academy, probably two, three hours, probably three hours south of Baghdad. So we'd sort of fly into the um, to the green zone and jump on some trucks and, and drive down there and stay there for sort of, our rotations were about two to three months at a time and come home for a month and, and, and then return. So mm. that was, um, once again, another really interesting role and got to work with people from all over the world. Um, a lot of police, a lot of Defence Force people from different countries, including Australia, but New Zealand, Australia and New Zealand probably were the biggest side, but we had Americans, a few Irish, unfortunately, um, some, some English, some yeah, people from everywhere. And once again, all really good operators with um, good intentions in a, a, a pretty difficult environment. How did you find that eclectic mix of not just personalities, but nationalities and people from all walks of life, from those who have never served in um, police law enforcement to those who have served in police and or uh, military environments? How did that all work? Yeah, it, it was just really difficult, I think. And, and certainly a lot of us probably hadn't been in those sort of more hostile environments um, coming from policing backgrounds, which is obviously totally different to going to. And it, it was busy when I was in Iraq at sort of 2006, 2007, I think mm. it was roughly. Um, there was plenty happening there, a lot of um, a lot of casualties. I think we lost probably three people, I think, in, in sort mm. of roadside bombs or ID attacks um, on, on the trip from Baghdad to, to the camp. Um, but just the, the amalgamation, I think everyone just got on so well. I think everyone knew that they were sort of in the, in the middle of nowhere and sort of there for a couple of months and the only communication was via Skype back in, back in that time. Um, but everyone just got on so well. They, they worked together. Every time there was a job, job to get done, typical sort of military thing, everyone would get together and get the job done. Um, all their work was done through interpreters. We made some really good relationships with them plus the local national sort of workers that we had on base that did some basic security stuff and things like cleaning and, and all that sort of stuff. But we, we played like volleyball and soccer and all that sort of stuff with them just to... And I think it held us in really good stead. Um, mm. That and a bit of a, a sense of humour, I think, was just invaluable over there. Once you got to know them, um, they, and they knew they could sort of like you and trust you, um, and the education process over there was trying to teach policing skills to these guys that were going out to crime scenes that had, an idea had exploded and killed hundreds of people. And it just, it, it felt a long straw to, um, to teach some of the skills that we were trying to teach. We did a lot of military stuff. We had the, the American Marines embedded there with our training. So they were doing their, um, all the room clearing and we did a lot of first aid stuff and, and everything like that. But it was, um, it was really interesting and I was, I was lucky enough to be, I'd previously before that gone and done the Ronin course over in South Africa. So I'd done a bit of medical um, and personal protection sort of training over there and ended up becoming the sort of stand-in medic when the, um, the, the real medic had sort of left uh, for his return home. So I'd, I'd be working with a guy called Dr. Sama, who was a former brain surgeon out of Baghdad and um, so I do the medical rotation. We had about 1,700, 1,800 students at any one time. Mm. Um, and, and they were treated for all sorts of ailments. We had a couple of ID explosions that came in from US Marines to treat. So I learned a lot about the, the medical side of things as well, um, working along him like he was just 
a brain surgeon that just couldn't get a get a job in Iraq because there was nothing for him. So he was hmm. working for the the Americans with us. Hmm. And the Ronan course is the close protection course, which is highly regarded, actually, the South African close protection uh, course yeah. run by yeah. um, by Ronan. And what what did a normal day look like for you, Dean? Uh, depending what role I was performing, as a medic, it was sort of all day just looking after the normal sort of ailments that um, that people get, and both our our own people and and, and others. But from an instructional point of view, it was um, classroom time for um, early sort of early mornings, five thirty in the morning, because it does get a little bit warm over there. Um, and then in the afternoon, we'd sort of disappear down to the mount, which was. Um, uh, set up to run sort of military type drills um teach policing skills so morning classroom based afternoon down at the mount which was just where we would conduct the more the, the physical skills i suppose or the, the more military orientated work um and then after hours it was just sort of kick back and and relax and work out or whatever you wanted to do whatever everyone found their own thing of what they were doing at this time and um then you get up and do it all over again and that was like seven days a week um, most of the time, until the students sort of left, we had courses that had run for about, I think they were about eight, eight weeks or something like that. So every now and again, again, you'd have a lull in between when the course finished and when they started. But, but infills and exfills for them was the most difficult because we'd had the infill would consist of trying to get 1,800 people through out of the sort of the badlands through the through the wire, and, and stripping them of weapons and whatever else they had with them, and and sort of injecting them into the um, to the to the training environment i think that was certainly the most dangerous part of, of that mission for us anyway was uh exfil wasn't as bad but the infill of bringing them in was mm. extremely complicated it would take sort of the full day from early morning to night before you got them all sort of tucked away in bed and um and, and comfortable but yeah i think that was probably the most um riskier part of, of that sort of deployment i suppose it's been interesting being in and alongside capacity building for organisations like the Iraqi police. And, you know, I think you look back now and scratch your head on some of that. But at the time, did you feel like you were making a difference, that you were making meaningful improvements into the law enforcement capability in Iraq? I think it was, I, I thought it was more a people development role than it was making a difference. Some people would take, you could see the ones that would take something away. And you could see the ones that were, some of them were there just to have a job because there was no work for them. They had nothing really to look forward to. They'd get a paycheck if they went there when the sort of senior um, Iraqi officers weren't stripping the money off them. Like they, everything was paid for them while they were there, but um, their sort of senior officers would find a way to um, make them pay again for the rental accommodation and, and those mm. sorts of things. You could just see um, that it was going to be a struggle for them to, to succeed and, and the good ones, and you could see the good ones. They were they, they were they were they had good skills. They were fit. You could see they had some experience. A lot of them had been former army as well, so they'd been in the Iraqi army, um, and they were just trying to get a job and support their family. And, and a lot of them do. They have a large family, and some have two and and, and three wives. So um, they were, they were away for a long period of time too. But it was um, it was hard to see them going back and using some of the some of the skills i think yes others i just think depending on where they went back to i think would be the decision as to how good they were going to be um i really do think that the the, the good ones would probably go somewhere if they were lucky and they got a good boss afterwards but some of the other ones i could just see that 
and we, we had doubts as to how sort of loyal they were to the whole process anyway. And um, quite often you'd get concerns about like the travel requirements and stuff like that and people talking and, you know, those sort of things that the intelligence sort of things that you don't really want to talk about vehicle movements in, in, in places like that. But um, we certainly had some concerns about some of them and even to the point where we were regularly sort of um, mortar attacks and, and those sorts of things and, some money would sort of change hands and those mortars would, would stop coming in. And it was just, a, it was just a, it felt a bit like the Wild West, to tell you the truth. But um, it was a certainly good experience and I look back in fond memories of it. It was an odd period of time. I mean, you're coming into the height of sectarian violence there, 2006, seven into 2008. Um, and and how, how did you keep yourself up and motivated against all of these different stressors, the direct attacks, the indirect attacks? I, I suppose it's pretty new for me. It's not something that sort of happens in the, in the police force in terms of um, uh, mortar and rockets, and Katusha rockets, whatever they were firing at us were. But it... It was, it's a strange feeling, and, I, and I'll talk a bit about later about some other things that happened to me, but it I think it was the people that we were with and just that, that camaraderie and the professionalism of the people who were there. We had some really experienced guys too that had, that had done a lot of time in, in the military and special forces and that sort of thing. So I, I think that level of comfort, even though you, you, we were basically in the middle of nowhere, we're basically mm. in the middle of a war zone in a, in a massive compound that, had the, the police academy there, but there was also the Iraqi police there that were stationed sort of within that compound as well. And um, But the people we had there, I think, and, and, and you guys know yourselves, it's, sometimes it's not it's not the place, it's it's the people that you're with. And and, and we did, you know, you do different things. You play cards, you do trivia nights, you do things to amuse yourself. Everyone was keen to stay reasonably fit and, um, and, and get on with the job and, and get home safe and, go home and come back and do it again. Some people did one tour and didn't come back and that's, that's all good and I completely understand that. Others, I think I did three in the end. I went I went back after a period of time to, to, to train up or to lead a, a sort of training contingent for some brand new recruits. But I, I think each time you went back, and I, I must admit, I saw it on the, the third time around. I, I'd been away for a little while and I went back and I was jumping out of the airport and jumping into the trucks and there were some guys there that hadn't been there before. You can distinctly see the look in their eyes of just, like for me getting to that, that stage, just felt like, I don't know, going to work as normal. And I know it's not, but it felt a bit business as usual, but you could see the difference in, in the others that hadn't been there before and how difficult. And I probably looked exactly the same when I went there for the first time and sort of eyes wide open and you don't really know what to expect or, or what's going to happen. So that was really... Yeah, um, interesting for me to take on. And it was the Wild West, and there were so many unknowns. It wasn't country that you were super familiar with. It was certainly, you know, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. As and we'd love to talk about those things. And it may be a blunt question to follow on there. How important was the money? Uh, uh, definitely important. Um, I think that was a fair part of it. Um, initially, at that time, we just started our own personal business back here in Australia, and. I decided to do this for, for that reason to sort of to kickstart some money to come in to um, to support that business back here because it was it was just starting, um, and and I think 
and, and different people went for different reasons. I think some people went to sort of, they thought they were going to be sort of saving the world and other people went for the experience and um, other people went for the money, I suppose. And, and I don't think there's a right or wrong reason to go, but I think my sort of reasoning was, it, it was partly the money. I think that was definitely part of it, but it was also, I sort of wanted to test myself a little bit at that stage. I think I'd, I'd always wanted to be deployed and I hadn't been in, in the Air Force. Um, that, that sort of role just wasn't available, particularly in, in my sort of, it, it happens now. I think that some of the PDIs go across to the Sinai and at that stage, I think we had Butterworth in Malaysia and that was about the only place you could go that was overseas and it certainly wasn't at risk of getting overtaken by anyone. Um, but just that idea of sort of testing myself in a, in a, in a difficult environment and to see how I hold up, I think that was, that was another reason being a little bit naive maybe or not but I think yeah that was that was part of the part of the reason for me to go mm. and when did you know it was time to come home uh, I think after the third rotation actually to tell you the truth <laughs> it, it winded that the contract finished um the basically the Iraqis were going to start training their own people um and I pretty much would have had enough by then anyway so I, I got a job offer back here like you mentioned before it um I think I work at courts in, in New South Wales. So there was an opportunity back here and I, I've been away for sort of two years on and off at that stage. And that was probably long enough at a family home and it was time to come home. Hmm. And from there till now? Uh, I, I had a few different jobs, I suppose. Parliament houses, both. I did security in courts across New South Wales. So a lot of looking after the first sort of counter-terrorism trials of the uh, in Sydney at a, at a Parramatta, um, New South Wales Parliament House. Um, and then probably after that to uh, the National Parliament in Canberra, I was the Director of Security at the National Parliament. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, as the sort of um, security managers, uh, sorry, security operations manager for the for roads and maritime here in Sydney, where I looked after the Harbour Bridge and all the critical sort of assets across New South Wales in terms of transport and road and all that sort of stuff so that was that was a great job that that was a that was a really good job i worked with um with mike who who you guys know who is a former one of your former colleagues and he's probably the best boss hope he's not listening but he's probably <laughs> the best boss i ever had i think so um it was that was a it was a really good time and did a lot of big new year's eve celebrations and the fireworks and everything that's built around those but i was lucky enough to go on a sort of worldwide tour to look at resilience um, and suicide prevention. Uh, so we went to San Francisco, New York, and across to the UK. Mm. Um, places like the Golden Gate Bridge, um, to, to talk to those guys about how they were managing, because the Golden Gate Bridge is one of the one of their major attractions is that people actually go there to commit self-harm or, or, or to jump off the side of the bridge. Um, and at that stage, they were putting like a $60 million net or something underneath to catch people. That, that jump off the bridge and um, we were just looking and considering that because um, all those places I've mentioned that have worked, particularly the critical infrastructure sites, so whether it be the Opera House, Parliament House or um, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, someone had attempted self-harm or actually committed sort of suicide while I'd been working there. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I sort of had a quite a, a decent interest in that as well because I was just wondering sort of why and how these things happen. So we... We went to sort of Statue of Liberty and, and look at that and spoke to sort of Homeland Security and across to the UK and post the sort of Westminster sort of terrorism incident as well and sort of spoke to their sort of um, their police and their counter-terrorism police about ways they were managing things. So I had a, yeah, it was a great, 
another great job I've had. I've had a, had a few good ones, but that was probably one of the one of the highlights, I think. And you've been studying psychological science. What's your theory on mental health? You know, why people fall into ill mental health, and how do they map their way out? Yeah, it's a, it's, it probably leads on to what sort of happened. I don't know whether you want me to talk about sort of post. Mm. My, my work or do you want me to lead straight into that <laughs> yeah no no straight into that love, yeah i'd love to tell you story yeah. yeah 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 um so i'd finished work at the um i hadn't finished i was preparing for new year's Eve, sort of 2017 um which was christmas sort of new year's leading into that so all the work for the for new year's eve had been done leading up to that i'd, I'd been to hawaii we went there over there for a holiday in about september and i'd been for a run and i just felt really ordinary and came back and saw the doc and they said oh you're all fine and maybe a bit stressed and you've been busy um, post that. I had two trips to the, the RPA hospital in Sydney in the back of an ambulance because I was just felt rubbish. I, I, I didn't really have – I had a pain in the chest, but the, I wouldn't really call them chest pains, but mm. I'd, I'd been cleared both times when I went, went to the hospital. They just sent me home and said, uh, there's nothing wrong, can't find anything wrong with you. Um in the end, uh, they sent me to a rheumatologist, sort of mentioned that I had some back pain and some arthritis from my Defence Force time. And um, uh, the rheumatologist sent me for a CT and he said, I think you've got some sort of calcification in your heart. So um, he sent me for a CT angiogram and um, I think it was a Saturday before Christmas. The um, uh, the guy that did the um, angiogram rang up and said, you just got to go to hospital straight away. You've got this massive blockage in your heart. And, and you need to get to the hospital. And no one had diagnosed it. It had been sort of left untreated for sort of three or four months. I'd been sort of doing normal things and running and boxing and, and those sorts of things. Um, and then I was stuck at the RPA um, when I was supposed to be doing New Year's Eve. I was at the RPA hospital and had an angiogram there and was told I'd needed sort of to have open heart surgery. So that was um, just before Christmas, uh, January, uh, sorry, December 2017. Um, and that was just a, a real eye-opener for me because I'd never, I'd always been fit and healthy and I just had no idea where this had come from or how I'd got to that position. So it was just, uh, it was a wake-up call, but um, it was a significant one because when they did the angiogram, I thought I'd maybe have a stent or something and I'd be home in a couple of days, but they did the angiogram and said I had a sort of a, I think I was in the 90th percentile of the blockage of the lower descending artery in your heart, which is they call the widow maker, mm-hmm. which the surgeon basically said to me that if I'd gone to work that day, I, I wouldn't have come home for New Year's Eve. So booked me in for a um, open heart surgery. And I think I was number 17 in the country to have robotic surgery. So normally yeah, right. they do a sternectomy, which is the splitting of the sternum and open your chest up. But for this particular surgery, they go through sort of underneath your um, your pectoral and your left-hand side. There's still a decent scar, but um, that's how they perform the surgery. And they, lucky enough, they took a, a vein from behind, an artery, sorry, from behind my um, sternum, and that's what they used to, to to fix the artery up. And it was an hereditary condition. My dad had it. He'd had a heart attack when he was quite young, and there was a narrowing of that particular artery, and there was an extra branch off it, which means that artery had more susceptible to sort of to, to become blocked. Um, and it just, it, it blew me away. Like I, we'll talk about resilience, I'm sure, but um, up until then, I, I thought it was fairly resilient. I, I'd been through a, a fair bit of stuff and and coming through reasonably well, sort of totally unscathed, really. Like I'd, I'd managed my mental health and 
all that sort of stuff really well. Um, but this was just a whole new world to me. It was after the surgery, it was my heart went into arrhythmia. I spent two days in um, sort of the ICU with a heart rate of about 160. Mm. Uh, and lucky enough, it, it bounced back and went back to normal by itself. I was just about ready to have um, it sort of um, electrical stimulation to, to bring it back into rhythm. Um, and after that, I was okay. I was allowed to sort of go back to the ward and then I was home within probably four, four or five days, but it's, it's the getting home bit. That's, that was, that was different, you <laughs> know, in, in a lot of ways. And how do you come back from that? I mean, physically, but also mentally. Yeah, I, I thought I'd be able to, to manage it pretty well. Um, and at the start, I think I did like you come home on a bucket load of medication and you, you leave the hospital, they, they show you this 1980 video and, and it sort of says, well, you might go home and you might be a bit teary for a few days. And um, it certainly wasn't like that. It was like, I, I was crook as I was, um, you start off basically walking around a block. And so you're back to sort of walking and um, one day you'll do one block and after the next week, you'll go to two blocks. And that for me was, that was a struggle because I was just used to sort of, going for a run and i'd yeah. gone from sort of running the week before to two weeks later i can't walk around the block and it, it was that defeating side of things going on. how did how did i get here and you go straight to that mental health space of just how did this happen to me and there's other people that are sort of overweight and smoking and, <laughs> and then all those sorts of things and here i am stuck with a with a massive hole inside of my chest and being able to walk around the block but um I think post my surgery, I was lucky I had, and, and you guys talk about it in your, in your resilience book, like your social network and mm. um, and and those sort of things. It's important to have that. I, I never would have survived without my wife and daughter being able to help me and, and do all the things that I needed. And, and my problem was that I just wasn't getting better. I went and did the um, the, the heart surgery rehab stuff, um, which I didn't think I needed to do, but I thought I'd go and do it just to see what it looks like. And I thought this would be pretty easy and, and it was easy, but post it, I would just get sick as anything. So I think I went twice a week and I'd, I'd come home and I was like crook as a dog, um, back to the hospital a couple of times. Um, and, and what they found out in the end is during, because they did that robotic surgery and the surgeon mentions it to you in a, in a sort of whisper on his way out the door, he says, oh, we, it's possible we can sort of cut a nerve during this process too. And they'd, they'd nicked a nerve when they did the surgery and, and what happened then was the pain from that nerve damage caused me to be in like the fight sort of flight sort of routine all the time because it'd be mm. constantly in pain so every time i'd try and do anything it would get sore and then my body would go into this anxiety sort of out of control position where you think you're gonna have a heart attack again and and unfortunately that happened to me like every day for nearly two years to tell you the truth i had um uh um, that nausea and pain and everything all day, every day. And if there's anything that was um, debilitating, it was the idea of sort of, is this ever going to get better? Because it was, it was, it was tough times during, during that period. It was, um, and for the family as well. If I, if I'm looking back now, I just, it's tough for everybody. Dan, you, you were saying you, you mentioned your family and your, your social support network as, as being a really positive aspect. What about 
inside your head. You know, how did you deal with that, what must have felt like hopelessness at, at times? Um, did you have any techniques that you, you lent on to, to sort of keep going through that? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, once again, I, I probably thought I was pretty much in control of sort of my thoughts and everything like that. But this this was just totally different for me. It was just like that from going from being normal to what's going on, how am I going to fix this? And, and I went down the rabbit hole, I think, to a lot of research and looking into things that could be this and it could be that. And because I was a fixer, like I'd been involved in, in risk management and the risk process forever. Like my idea was, well, something's wrong. I need to fix it. And how do I fix it? And um, look straight into the risk profile and just go, well, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in trouble here. Like I just, I didn't know what to do. So um, I went down the rabbit hole, but I engaged a psychologist really probably after about probably six months, which was probably too long. I think the process should be to have, everyone should have one of those straight after that surgery because it's so overwhelming that I think it should be compulsory to, to see one. But that's another conversation altogether. But I think the idea of, and I'd considered, I hadn't done it before, like I'd done yoga and um, mm. those, I used to do a lot of yoga beforehand. Um, and with that came breathing and meditation, but I hadn't really treated that probably and given it the respect that it certainly deserved. And I'd started those processes as well, like box breathing and um, spoken to a whole lot of people about different breathing techniques, done a lot of research and then, and then started the meditation. And I think, and it probably in a lot of ways, and your book certainly reflects this. I, I wish I'd had your book to tell you the truth when, I, when this had first happened, because I think it would have been, it, it's a really valuable tool. Um, I don't think, you guys probably estimate as valuable a tool as it actually is because it, they should almost give it to people when they're walking out of hospital because hmm. it, just the, the practicalities of the things that you guys talk about are so applicable to the sensations and the things that you go through post the surgery and, and you put some scientific rigor and things like that behind it, which I think just supports some of the theories that you're trying to put forward. Um, but I, like there's plenty of books out there and, and you read so much and um, sort of Renee Brown and the grid scores and and those sorts of people, Dr. Dreck, is it, I think? Carol Dweck, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's sort of plenty of people around that, that have something to say and um, I, sort of, I sort of, that's one thing I did a lot was one was listen to podcasts and two was do a lot of reading and, and research into this because I sort of lived the, um, the experiment almost. Um, so I could sort of apply that and um, I'll talk a bit about that later. But um, I think that the breathing techniques of psychologists, uh, the support of the GP, um, the family support um, and the, the breathing practices, the exercise practices, um, my, my, my big issue was those things were all good, but they weren't helping and I wasn't improving. If anything, I was actually going downhill. Hmm. Um and I just couldn't understand why. Like, I think I'm doing all this. I'm taking the medication. I've got an exercise program, which was going okay, but I was still struggling because of the soreness and everything else. Um, and then I just started getting these really bad headaches. And I just, there's just something not right here. And I went back to my GP and I pretty much said, this is, this is crap. I've been living like this for two years. I don't feel right. I feel like there's, there's something else not quite right. Mm. And, um, she sort of said, well, I'll send you away for a brain scan just to make sure there's nothing going on in your head. And and I, I didn't think much more about it. I, I thought it would be just a scan. I'll come back yep. and it'll go back to the nerve pain thing. And my wife didn't even come back with me to the to the doctors because we both 
we were pretty blase about my daughter came back with me and we sat there in the gym and she sort of brought out the results and sort of said, oh, yeah, we, we sort of found something. And I just, I was sort of numb at that stage. I was just, and my daughter just looked at me and she sort of burst into tears and I'm just going, mm. oh, no, not again. I don't know if I can live through this sort of process again. But, um, yeah, they found a, a, a brain tumour, but it was a, what's called a meningioma. So it sits on the outside of your brain. Um, but it, the problem with it is that it pu- actually pushes instead of inside your brain taking up space, it sort of pushes your brain inwards. Yeah. Um, and that's what was causing most likely the nausea, but definitely the headaches and, and some of the other symptoms that I was having. So it was back to the um, the surgical show for me and um, another sort of, I wouldn't call it a minor surgery. But in, <laughs> in a lot of ways, it, it was a lot easier, the brain surgery. And I've got a decent scar that sort of runs from the bridge of my nose or up into my hairline, which I'm lucky I've got a decent set of hair down to the sort of top of my left ear. So it was like the full on um, craniotomy, I think they call it. Um, and initially it was going to be just a, a small operation because I'm going to go through the top of your eyebrow because that's what they can do now with the machinery they've got. But mm. once again, the surgeon whispers in my ear when I'm just about to go on <laughs> anesthetic set. We've just had a look with the machine because they can't, sort of make the measure for the um, for the tumour until they put this special machine on because that tells him where to cut and those sorts of things. And he said, oh, it's a bit bigger than what we thought. Um, so you're going to have a little bit bigger scar when you woke up. And mm. it was certainly uh, a Frankenstein-type moment when I, when I woke up because it was um, – it was. I, I sent you guys some photos, I think. So it was, yeah, it's it, was pretty a, it was a decent scar, yeah, and with a bit of a headache after that. And this time I, I treated things a little bit differently. It was, um, I think after my heart surgery, I knew what I'd done after that and sort of didn't work. And I thought this time I'm, I was going to do things just a, a little bit differently. Um, so after the surgery, I spent about two weeks in hospital. Um, they cleaned it up, done a really good job. It wasn't uh, benign in any way. So of all the meningiomas to get it, it was probably the best one. Um, but they said if they hadn't taken it out, it just would have grown larger and, and it would have caused all sorts of problems. So I was lucky I had it out, but it took me sort of back to ground zero again where I was just mm. um, back in the hole, I suppose, um, of feeling like it's back to walking around the block again, mm. um, feeling like rubbish. Um, and that was just the second time over, I think. And, and you mentioned before, I think you mentioned hopeless, I think, Tim. Mm. Um and it's that idea of hope. You, you sort of, and I've heard, I don't know if you've ever listened to Andrew Huberman's podcast, he's yeah. a neurologist, it's sort of a great guy and really, really smart. And he talks about hope and that that loss of hope. Um, and I could never see mine sort of ending. And I never got to that sort of self-harm or sort of suicidal sort of side of things, I, I, I don't think. But I think Robbie Williams says, I, I don't want to die, but I'm not keen on living either. I think that that's, mm. that's exactly how it felt. Um, I just I just couldn't get myself out of it. But in the end, I sort of engaged all the things that I'd, I'd learned along the way from the first time. Um, 
and use that as a bit of a practice run and, and then really engage with the the exercise but on, on, on my terms and how I wanted to do it because I was lucky enough to have that sort of physical background. I knew what I had to do. Um, the breathing and meditation, I sort of took all that to another level and did it thoroughly, religiously, um, practiced sort of every day um, and, in, and started a, a psychology course, my degree probably, and it probably took a little while, so probably I didn't do that till maybe 12 months and I probably wish I'd started it before, but I think just those internal resources, I just didn't have them. I, I think mm. they talk about allostatic or allostatic load and I think at that stage it was on allostatic overload because I was just um, uh, totally, my resources inside were just, were just spent and it was so difficult to do anything um, that it just took all my energy to get through the day. So I'd get to the end of the day and go, this is unreal. I get to go to bed now because I've just, I'd done things through the day, done things through the day, but it was just that really difficult challenge to, to and, and I made the effort to to get out of bed every morning. Like I made up my mind that, and, and after my heart surgery as well, I just sort of decided that that was that was my goal was just to get out of bed, and then we'll see how we go from there. And I, I did that the second time around, um, and I think those just those little things um, they all added up together. Once again, the, the social network. Um, all in the external advice and the help that I got. Once again, GPs, psychologists, those people are just so invaluable. I, I can't speak highly enough of the, the help that I've got along the way, but it, it pushed me in the direction and wanted to go, well, I want to know more about this and want to find out how I can actually help others. And I, I've got the valuable experience of having gone through it. Now I'm sort of trying to get a sort of role in the field and um, having some experience with first responders and and all that sort of thing, I, I feel like I'm reasonably well placed now to to be able to hopefully and um, to turn this thing around and go. That was pretty crap, but um, on the flip side of this, I might be able to do some good with it and talk to some people and um, try and find the right space for myself to to work. I think. Dean, as you know, we love the Stoics, and, and one of our fav- her favourite Stoic quotes uh, quotes is uh, Marcus Aurelius's sort of timeless "Get active in your own rescue." And it sounds like you've certainly done that with your, um, you know, recognition of what's going on and and your your ability to to find and and develop what you called the tools, the internal tools, to be able to to get yourself into a better space. And now looking to help other people, what? Are the, the sort of key takeaways? What have you learnt from your own experiences um, that you're now sharing with people, including first responders, to give them those tools, um, ideally prior to, to having to go into a, a stress-related um, illness or injury? Yeah, I think in the, in the study or guys' book, you talk about that sort of innate layer, and I, I think that's where it needs to start. I, I, I know everything else is really important, but like I had, I thought I had resilience and skills and those sorts of things before this happened. Um, looking back now, I was so not prepared for, for this in, in any way. Um, I, I think maybe if we could catch that early, particularly in first responders, I think that would be valuable for them to be able to to learn those breathing techniques, the meditation stuff, get some some actual background from some some specialists, whether they be psychologists or um, other specialists in the area to, to be able to assist in the delivery of some sort of a uh, course or, or something like that, that that teaches people. And I know Angela Duckworth with her grit score and she's done some work with the sort of Americans and the, the special forces over there, I think. But um, I'm, 
a really big advocate of having that sort of innate layer of, of learning to deal with those experiences, not through having to go through them. Because I think by the mm. time you're having to go through them, it might be too late in the flip side. Like you might not come out of it. Um, you might, but if you can develop those skills before you actually get ex- exposure to the, the traumatic event, whichever that might be, it might be same as me. It could be a policeman, a soldier. It could be the guy that gets run over by a car in the street. Like that, that resilience has to be developed really early on and almost back to school age, to tell you the truth. Like, um, and I'm, I'm, COVID's probably helped people, I think, to me. I, I see people having been through a pandemic like this that's gone on for two years, like school kids and all those people that have and medical staff and everyone that's had involvement in this thing and, and even the general person that's just had exposure to it. I think that's that's almost like a bit of a innate layer and it would be interesting to do a study on that to have a look at whether the, the resilience people hold now, they think they're more resilient than before the pandemic. I'd, I'd love to see some someone do us, and I'm sure there'll be a million studies on COVID post, hmm. post this thing. So, um, but yeah, definitely the skills beforehand and, and, and also just to keep in touch. Um, and I know the military does this really well now with um, the way they treat veterans. I, I'm not sure about the you know, Department of Veteran Affairs and those sort of things, but I know there's a lot of individual bodies um that help and and give direction to and provide employment and i think even leaving the defense force is such a it's such a hard thing to do because you've got that um um sort of body of people around you you know the drill and then you're sort of into civvy street and it, it it's a battle but if if you leave and go into that battle and you've got some sort of pts problems and sort of some history of, of some mental health stuff that you've been exposed to while you've been in it's 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 a hard road if you haven't got that really good network around you and those, those specialist psychologists um, and just just people that are, are keen to help. So the advice I'd give is to just look out for your mates to tell you the truth because they're so valuable in um, and have been in my recovery too. Just being able to talk to someone and and not even about sort of your injury or whatever it is, just having to chat in general. That that social layer, um, the family sort of things, and they're just so important. And the two things that you've mentioned a few times, breathing and meditation, that assisted you oh, in your first um, journey, but also in, in when you got back to ground zero in your second journey, um, what style of breathing and or meditation do you embrace? You mentioned combat breathing. Is that still your deliberate breathing practice? Or yeah, so I do with the combat, the, sort of the box breathing sort of things, but mm. I, I, I spoke to... Um, to Tony Blau a little while ago, he does the sort of the no fear, the martial arts yeah, yeah. stuff. I was involved in that in like a, a long time ago, and he put me onto a guy called Brian McKenzie out of the US. Um, yes, yep, yep, yep. Um, and he's got some really interesting techniques. Um, Andrew Human talks about um, a, a lot of breathing stuff too, and the science behind them. Um, I, I think. It's more of just developing a practice. I'm not sure whether I find any one particular way better than the other, but I know that that practice is essential um, and it needs to... And I've, sometimes I find it better than meditation because with meditation you can still get a bit stuck in, in your head because you're doing the thinking and then you're thinking about thinking and thinking about meditation. <laughs> with, with the breathing, I think the focus remains pretty much purely on the the breathing and it's just it just gets you into that zone and exercise and things like that. I think that it sort of all goes together. And um, if you could put it uh, like a, a really good course together, I'd love to include sort of all those things and 
have some specialists get together and, and design something that's sort of specific to those sort of suffering from, from trauma, I think it'd be, it'd be really valuable. Yeah, it came too late in my life and probably speaking for Ben as well, you know, we, <laughs> we realised the meditation and breathing practice probably way too late. It would have been awesome yeah. early, earlier on. Yeah, whether it's too late, I mean, it's it's, it's great a game. <laughs> and, and and it's funny what you, you just said, Dean. I'm, I tend to combine breathing uh, often like a, a Tumo Wim Hof yeah. uh, style session, yeah. which I find actually you know, I guess because it triggers that parasympathetic state at the end of it, then puts me in a position where I can meditate more effectively. But there's something yeah. in the combination, for me anyway, that, that I think is, is very positive. Yeah, and there's a technique rounding, which is yoga, really mild yoga into meditation that dislocates, um, you know, that mad monkey mind that we all have. Yes. Um, so that yeah. when, when you do start meditating, you, you do fall into your you know, sort of unconscious state a bit quicker. Uh, yes, what about meditation? Yeah. Do you follow any particular practice or style? No, not not particularly. Um, I, I think I've just used the apps to tell you that Insight Timer and um, and some of the others, and I get different things from sort of different people as I go along. I've I sort of got into a lot of the, the Buddhism sort of teachings and those sorts of things, the mindfulness practices. I found they were they were really good. Um, but I like the idea of what you're speaking about. They're like the combination of the two. Yoga Nidra was something and that non-sleep sort of deep rest that Andrew Huberman talks a lot about um, just for sleeping and just like a, it's almost like a cat nap. You, you sort of sleep, but you don't sleep. It's just like that cat nap in the afternoon. But it's, I find for me anyway, particularly when I'm studying and sort of got head in the books and trying to get my head around those statistics course that I'm currently doing. Um, <laughs> but those sort of things can but just we sort know, of. We know, the, we know the trauma associated <laughs> with statistics. <laughs> Oh, well, in fact, I don't. I don't know it because Ben does all the statistics work that sits behind. Uh, so he's a T scores and the P value expert. Well, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I don't do the work. I don't do all the work. Where our amazing um, research partner Lee Snodebart does all the the actual heavy number crunching. I just pretend that I know what she's talking about. I use the timer function off Insight Timer. I haven't actually done many of their guided meditations, but that is an excellent app. And we've had Nico Plowman on our show before, who was a co-founder of Insight Timer. It used to be Zen Timer, mm. and then they, yeah. they did a rebadge and I think um, a little acquisition. But yeah, that, I, I do find that very helpful. Yeah, and it's free too. It's another resource and anyone can get hold of for, for, for no cost, really. Yeah, it's lovely. And it's also a marketplace, you know. So if you do a free guided meditation from a teacher that you really like, you can continue to pay you know not a significant amount of money to yep. to follow yep. their theories their teachings which is which is kind yep. of wonderful and there's some stoic stuff in there as well i, I recently did a there was a, a stoic sort of course on around meditation and i got well, i think you guys are right into it as well i read a lot of ryan holiday's books and um epictetus and and those sort of people but i love the stoicism side of things too i think mm. the readings of those were, were and something i haven't talked a lot about but i found those extremely valuable as well just to have some of the forethought and the, the thinking that went around at that time is it sort of can blow your mind a little bit when you start to read about it. Yeah, it's good just to have in the toolkit, isn't it? You know, all these variety of things that you know, might make might make a little contribution at different times in your life. In fact, looking at Ben, um, Insight Timer has binaural beats, which yeah, yeah. You know, Dan's been yeah. using yeah. You know, different sound going into each year, which is peculiar to start with. But <laughs> actually, yeah. um, I really like it. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be effective. I use it to study with biennial beats. Actually, I just find that I can't have music on when I'm studying or, or reading, but I can put those things on and they just 
they sort of help me get in the zone a little bit. It's good. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's Dan's trick. Um, so where to from here, Dan? Uh, I'm just trying to find my sort of next path. I've sort of got a fairly good idea where I want to go. I've just applied to become a lifeline counsellor here in Sydney. Um, and that's sort of, I'm sort of two and a half years through my sort of psychology degree. Um, I sort of know where I want to get to, but I'm just not quite exactly sure what it looks like. It's more, it's working in that space of um, people post-trauma. And I don't think it needs, initially I thought it had to be first responders or um, something like that. But now I'm starting to think of it. It's, it's not one particular person or group of people that needs this. It, it, it sort of applies to everybody. And I, I'm in a unique situation where I've just, I've gone through it and I, I understand it. And I, I, I get where the problems come from, where you need the help. It's sort of just putting some ideas together about how they might work. I, I work for, uh, we've got our own business. It's called Front and Centre. So we're training solutions. So we do a lot of training in the, the pharmaceutical space. So I've done some resilience sort of training and work in, in for different pharmaceutical companies. Um, uh, and and I, find, I just like, I just like delivering those things because if I can, and a lot of people just get little things out of it and they you sort of the lived experience sort of things they, they love hearing about. And I love it too. Like I, I love hearing about people's lived experience. And I think we undervalue that particularly, I'm not sure about the military, but in the police, I think we go out and, and get sort of experts to come in and deliver keynotes and that's all great. But a lot of times there's those people in your organisation that already have those skills and, and it makes me wonder why we get outsiders to come and talk about other things and, in no way a, a swipe at anyone that's doing um, the keynotes and everything like that. But I just think we undervalue the lived experience side of the, the people that we have in our organisations that can actually talk about the problems that they've had and how they've dealt with them because they're in the same boat and they're in the same business normally. And I, I think that could be a great help. Mm, it's a good zoom in, zoom out there. I think you need the lived experience, but that can't be the only thing. And you know, conversely, you can't just all be about the science and the academics. You've got to be able to Tell the story. Tell the st- yeah, humans learn through stories. Yeah. Well, Dean, listen, thank you very much. It's been awesome to, to chat with you and, and for you to, to share your experiences. It's, um, yeah, I mean, if with your permission, we'll, we'll post some of those photos you sent through of, of um, the, the kind of battle wounds from those surgeries. It's certainly not an easy path that you've, you've gone through, and it's been fantastic for us to hear that some of the stuff we've been interested in and have found of has worked for us personally, um, has resonated with yourself, and more importantly, that you're now using your experiences to, to help other people, particularly in that first responder space. Good on you, mate. Great. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate your time, and um, thanks for having me on. Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60.
Beat 